Hey, Life Church, we're going to be in, um, where are we today? John chapter 18 and 19. I was about to say Luke because Brittany was talking about the Gospel of Luke. We are in the Gospel of John chapter 18 and 19. We've got a, a ton of scripture to cover this morning, um, but I think you'll be helped if you can put that in front of your face. John 18 and 19. I'll start in verse 28 of chapter 18 in a few moments. This is week number seven of our journey through the Apostles' Creed. Now, for 2,000 years, um, I've said this time and time again over the last seven weeks, but for the last 2,000 years, the church has looked to the Apostles' Creed um, to clarify the truth and correct error and to form and shape and disciple its people. And so our vision over the 15 weeks that we're going to be walking through the creed is just that the creed would do that for us. We're going to let the creed clarify what Christians truly believe and correct error. And then we're going to let the creed form and shape us. But we're doing that just by opening our Bibles week after week after week. We're not preaching the creed. We're letting the creed shape where we go in the Bible. We're preaching the Bible. And we're just using the Bible to illuminate the truth that we see in the creed as we've unpacked phrase upon phrase upon phrase. And so over the last few weeks, we're in the second major section of the creed. We've considered Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Last week, we considered the fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Today, we add the phrase to the creed, he was crucified, died, and was buried. And that's where John 18 and 19, I believe, will help us. Um, 25 years ago, I went to college to study music education with an emphasis in woodwind performance. I was a clarinet major. I joke from time to time that um, I've done pretty well in life considering the fact that my only two marketable skills are preaching really long sermons and playing an instrument that nobody wants to listen to. Um, But anyway, I was 25 years ago um, in college studying to uh, teach music and perform music, and I developed a pretty good relationship with one of my professors. His name was Dr. Robert Krause. And Dr. Krause, he was the oboe professor at the college I was attending. Um, He also taught freshman music literature. And uh, Dr. Krause, he had perfect pitch, which is this really rare genetic thing that some musicians have. You can't learn perfect pitch. You can't develop it or train it in yourself. Perfect pitch is just something that you're born with, and it allows you to, by ear, identify any note. Like you hear a note, and you can just name that note. Dr. Krause, he had that really rare genetic gift. But um, I I developed a good relationship with Dr. Krause while I was in school. Um, He was a single man in his late 50s or maybe early 60s, um, and he just had an open-door policy, right? You could stop in his office and ask him a question about what you're learning anytime. He also made a habit of like inviting groups of students over to his house um, on the regular, and, and I was often like a part of one of those groups of students that would just spend time at Dr. Krause's house thinking about music and listening to music and talking about music and exactly the kind of thing that you think you would do if you're like learning to play the clarinet for a living. But anyway, um, I remember this one time when I was in Dr. Krause's kitchen with a friend of mine. His name was Jamie. Um, And Jamie was wearing this t-shirt. It was a solid colored t-shirt, and it had this like type across the front, print, right, that was intentionally blurry. And the words that were really blurry on the front of Jamie's shirt said, focus on the cross. And that was blurred out. And Dr. Krause, he he was talking to us, and he stopped for a minute, and and he looked at Jamie's shirt, and he said, now why would you want me to do that? 
And he goes on, he says, like, why are Christians so obsessed with the cross? Nobody would ever ask you to focus on the electric chair. Nobody would ever ask you to focus on a guillotine. Why are Christians obsessed with an instrument of torture and death? And Dr. Krause, he asked that question in a tone that made it clear that he wasn't really asking a question, right? He didn't want answers. There was no dialogue that he was interested in. He just wanted to make a point. And my friend Jamie, he pretty quickly understood that. And so he backed away. We kind of changed the subject and moved on from that awkward moment. But church, I'll be honest with you, like, I've never forgotten that conversation. I've never gotten, forgotten those questions that Dr. Krause asked. Why are Christians so obsessed with an instrument of torture and death? Why do we hang it around our necks? Why do we put it on the walls of our homes or of our worship spaces? Why do we adorn our lives with an instrument that was the most violent and gruesome form of execution known to the Roman Empire? In the time of Jesus, it was actually impolite to even speak about the cross. Right, the famous Roman orator Cicero, not a Christian, but maybe you've heard of Cicero from a civics class back in the day. The Roman orator Cicero, he once said this about the cross. He called it the, a most cruel and disgusting punishment. And then he added in a speech, he said this. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. And then in another speech, Cicero, he added this line. He said, indeed, the mere mention of crucifixion is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Even mentioning crucifixion is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Contrast that with the statement that the Apostle Paul makes in the very same century as Cicero in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says this. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so the question that we need to wrestle with today is how do we get from Cicero, who says that even mentioning the cross is an abomination, to Paul, who says, I'm not going to boast in anything except the cross. Right? What did Paul believe? And what must we believe about the crucifixion and death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ in order to make that leap? I pray that John 18 and 19 we're going to help us answer that question this morning. Let's turn to our Bibles now. I'm going to start reading John 18, starting in verse 28. The Apostle John writes, Then they, he's speaking here about the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So this is after the arrest of Jesus, after Judas has betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Jewish leaders have come and arrested him, and they've taken him now to the house of Caiaphas, who was um, a religious official. But then they move on to the governor's headquarters, the governor being Pontius Pilate. It was early in the morning. 
They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Pilate was a Gentile. These Jewish leaders, they didn't want to enter a Gentile's house because then they would have to be ceremonially cleansed before they could celebrate the Passover themselves. So they send Jesus in to be defiled, but they won't go in themselves. Verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, making very clear right there what their ultimate intention is, right? Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, as this narrative kind of unfolds in front of us here, I want you to notice that that is the key question here in John 18 and 19. Are you the king of the Jews? In fact, as you're going to see, as we walk through the story, Pontius Pilate, he actually never refers to Jesus by name in the Gospel of John. He just keeps calling him over and over and over again, the king of the Jews. Watch for that. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the question that we're trying to answer. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? There's the question again. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now Pilate does not sincerely think that Jesus is a king here, right? He's taunting Jesus by asking Jesus these questions, and he's taunting Jesus further by going out to the Jewish leaders and saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is king of anything, which is why in verse 1 of chapter 19, he turns around and immediately has Jesus beaten. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. These are are the trappings of a king, but Jesus is being mocked by this crown and mocked by this royal robe. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to, to what happens next. Right? Pilate, he is exacerbate, exacerbated. He, he doesn't know what to think about Jesus. He'd prefer that right, this whole Jesus problem go away. And by the way, that's still, still today. People, they reject Jesus that way. Not everybody who rejects Jesus refutes the claims that Jesus makes. Some people just think that Jesus is inconvenient. They're apathetic and indifferent, and they don't bother with Jesus. That's still a rejection of Jesus, the kind of rejection that Pilate commits here. But notice in verse 12 that the Jewish leaders have a very different way of rejecting Jesus. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So what happens here is that the Jewish leaders, they reject their true and rightful king. Right? Though they have been waiting and praying for centuries for the Messiah to come, for the son of David to come and to restore the kingdom of Israel. When Jesus comes, they mock him, they condemn him, they trump up charges against him, they choose a known criminal over him. And to top it all off, these Jewish leaders, they pledge their allegiance to Caesar. Now, for decades before Jesus had come, the Jews had actually been revolting against Caesar. They'd been revolting against Rome. For decades, the Roman government had had to send in armies to kind of squash these Jewish rebellions. Actually, they would increase even after Jesus came. In AD 70, finally, the Roman emperor would just get fed up with the Jews, and he'd send in a massive army, and that massive army would wipe out the temple in Jerusalem and basically level the city to the ground. The Jews and Caesar are not friends. But here in this moment, when confronted by the reality of choosing allegiance to King Jesus or Caesar, the Jews, they choose Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, they claim. And so they crucify the true king of the Jews. 
Keep reading. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now listen, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I written. Now, it's so striking to me, like, how short and succinct and and terse the gospel's descriptions of the crucifixion of Jesus really are, where there's very little detail here in what John writes for us. Mel Gibson, he makes a two-hour movie, like, portraying this scene that the Apostle John summarizes in just a few sentences. Bible scholars actually believe that the account of the crucifixion, the narrative of the crucifixion in the Gospels is incredibly short because writers in the ancient world, they knew how horrific crucifixion was. They knew how gruesome and brutal it was. And so even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they could not bring themselves to like put detail on paper because those details were just so graphic and so gruesome. It's just very short and succinct here. There they crucified him, John says. And that's almost all that John says about the pivotal event in human history. In verses 23 and 24, the soldiers who crucified Jesus, they try to like divide his robe between them, but they can't in fulfillment of Scripture. Verses 25 to 27, Jesus with some of his last breaths urges the Apostle John to care for Mary, his mother. Let's read again now in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. The Gospel of John is written down for us in Greek, originally. In the Greek language, that statement, it is finished, is just one word, tetelestai, a verb. Um, In the Greek, there's this special verb tense that's fairly rare. It's called the perfect tense. We don't have anything like it in English. But the perfect tense refers to an action that has been completed in the past, but that has ongoing effect into the present and the future. Completed in the past, ongoing effect into the present and the future. That's the verb tense that John writes down these last words of Jesus to tell us I it is finished. I wonder if you can imagine this scene. On that day, the first Good Friday, multitudes gathered 
on the hills outside of Jerusalem to watch Jesus die. But the Jewish leaders, the ones who had rejected Jesus in favor of Caesar, they saw, as Jesus hung on the cross, a lawbreaker, a blasphemer, a rabble-rouser, right? someone who like, wouldn't ever answer their questions and who would often make them look stupid when they tried to debate him. And so that when they saw Jesus hanging on that cross, they saw someone getting what they believed he deserved. The soldiers who tried to tear Jesus' garments apart so they could take some scrap of it home and sell it, they saw a common criminal, a man who was executed between two petty thieves. Pilate, I think it's pretty clear from the story, saw an innocent man, someone who did not deserve to die, but who was delivered over to the crowds to appease their bloodthirsty anger. Jesus' followers, they saw their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord, the one to whom they had devoted their lives hanging on that cross. But no one saw what Jesus saw in that moment, the moment of his death. See, Jesus in that moment, he saw his mission finished. He had obeyed God the Father's will completely. He had fulfilled God's perfect law perfectly. He drank the entire cup of God's wrath. He purchased his people by his blood so graciously, right? The work that Jesus had come to do was accomplished. It was finished. He left nothing undone. He paid the full penalty demanded by the sins of his people. He redeemed every member of his bride by his blood. He satisfied every ounce of God's righteous wrath against sin. It was finished. In our passage, it continues. The Apostles' Creed doesn't merely say that Jesus was crucified. It says that he was crucified, died, and was buried. And as we see, the Apostle John agrees John leaves no doubt, in fact, that Jesus died. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Why did the Jews ask Pilate to break Jesus' legs? Well, the next day was the Sabbath day, a high day, in fact, like a day of official Jewish celebration. And so the Jews, they didn't want Jesus' rotting corpse hanging on the cross overnight on the Sabbath, right? They wanted him dead on Good Friday so that they could dispose of his body on Good Friday. And so they broke his legs, Moved to break his legs, I should say. Bible scholar D.A. Carson, he explains what's going on here for us. He says, the normal Roman practice 
was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died, and this could take days, and then leave their rotting bodies hanging there to be devoured by vultures. If there was some reason to hasten their deaths, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victim with an iron mallet. Quite apart from the shock and additional loss of blood, this step prevented the victim from pushing with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Strength in his arms was soon insufficient, and asphyxia followed. In short, the Jews wanted Jesus to choke to death on the fluid in his own lungs. Right? They wanted him unable to breathe. But Jesus was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, they pierced him with a spear, again, fulfilling Scripture. And in the process, they confirmed that Jesus died. Right? He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He died. Jesus was crucified, died, and he was buried. As the Creed says, verse 38 tells us about that. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now there's a deep irony here. It's subtle. We might miss it. But the point that John is making here is that Jesus is truly the king of the Jews after all. The question that Pontius Pilate kept asking Are you the king of the Jews? The things that the Jews didn't want Pilate to write on the sign over the cross on which Jesus was crucified. The king of the Jews. The manner of Jesus' burial actually reveals that Jesus is indeed king. Nicodemus, he brings this mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighs 75 pounds. Now, it's the Jewish custom to, you know, anoint somebody in spices and oils as they're buried to kind of deal with, like, the stink of the dead body. But, but 75 pounds of spices and oils, I mean, that's a staggering quantity. The only kind of person who would be anointed with that much oil is a king. Joseph of Arimathea, like, he finds this new tomb Right, a tomb that no one has ever been laid in before. The tomb of a rich man. Most people in this age, they're just thrown in a mass grave and they're left to rot. Only rich people got their own tombs. Only kings got tombs that had never been used before. But the manner of Jesus' burial, it reveals that he was indeed king. John's telling us, King Jesus, he was crucified. He died, and he was buried, just as the Apostles' Creed says he was. Now, throughout this series, as we've unpacked a line or a phrase from the Creed, we've just then been making the point, what does it mean to truly believe these things? And we've acknowledged that 
true belief in something. It's, it's different than and it's more than just agreeing with some ideas, right? Like I agree with some ideas about the life of George Washington. Like I believe that he was our first president. I believe that he crossed the Delaware River to whoop up on redcoats. I believe those things because I, I think that they are intellectually verifiably true. But true belief in the biblical sense goes far beyond that. It's not just knowing certain facts. It's believing those facts in a way that, that transforms you. And so every week in this series, we've acknowledged the fact that true belief, it involves and requires three things. True belief, it informs your intellect, what you think. It commands your will, like it shapes what you actually do with your life. And it transforms your affections. It reshapes your heart and the things that you love and worship and trust in. And so let's look at those three things now that we've considered the fact that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. What do our intellects need to know about the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus? Well, perhaps the most critical thing for us to know or to believe this morning is that the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus was sufficient. It was enough. In other words, we need to know and to believe what Jesus himself said as he hung dying on the cross when he said those three words, it is finished. The truth is that most of us really struggle to to keep hold of that truth. And you can tell because the way that we live our lives, right? We walk through life either. There are two ways in which we reveal that we don't really get that Jesus' saving work for us was finished. Because we walk through life either pretending that our sin isn't really that bad, or we walk through life performing, hoping that we can muster up some kind of spiritual performance that will make God satisfied with us and compel him to overlook our sin. And so we're always either pretending or performing. And the pretending and the performing, they reveal the fact that we don't really get that Jesus' saving work for us was sufficient, that it was complete, that it was finished. How would you know if you're doing this? Let me just kind of tease it out. Ask yourself, a couple of questions this morning. Here's the first one. What do you count on to give yourself a sense of personal credibility? In other words, what in your life do you think about and you say, you know, that's the thing that makes me a pretty big deal. That's the thing that makes me somebody. What do you look to in yourself for that sense of personal credibility? You can tell a couple of ways. Like if you find yourself consistently looking down on the way other people do something, there's a pretty good chance that that's the thing you're looking to for personal credibility. So if you're constantly looking down your nose at the way other people like keep their children and like parent their children, there's a pretty good sense that you're deriving some sense of personal sufficiency and worth from the way that you parent your children. Like if you're constantly looking down on other people for their shabby work ethic, there's a pretty good chance that you're looking to your own work ethic for a sense of validation and worth in the eyes of others and even in the eyes of God. 
right? However you look down on other people, that often reveals what you're really looking to for that sense of personal credibility. Or you can think about it another way, like what is it that you, you feel fragile about? Like what is it that like if it starts to go wrong in your life, you feel like your life is just going to completely fall apart, right? If it's your ministry and your ministry starts to kind of like fall apart on you, that like exposes to you the fact that like you are putting all of your like validation and worth in that ministry. You're looking to that ministry for some sense of personal fulfillment. That ministry is the thing that's making you feel like you're a big deal in the eyes of other people and in the eyes of God. In other words, you're looking to that for your righteousness. All of us do this, right? For some of us, it's work. It's like we think I, I matter because I'm a hard worker. For others of us, it's, it's family. We think I matter because I do the right things as a parent and I'm godlier than those other parents who can't control their kids. For some of us, it's the way that we keep our schedules. Like we think I'm more disciplined and I manage my time better than other people and that's why I'm awesome. For some of us, we think it's about the way we think about the way we care about the needy. We think everyone should care about the poor the way that I do. For some of us, it's our politics. We think if you loved Jesus as much as I love Jesus, then you'd vote for my candidate. For some of us, it's even our theology. We think if you really love God, then you'll believe the way that I do on all of these issues. What do you do that makes you feel like you matter? And if it's anything other and the perfect finished work of Jesus on the cross, there's a good chance that you're trying to stand on that for your worth and for your identity rather than standing on the finished ground of the cross. You can come at this a different way. Answer this question. What does God think of you right now? What is the look on his face? Do you think he's angry, disappointed, underwhelmed, indifferent? Does his face say, get your act together? Does his face say, man, if only you were doing a little bit more? Does his face say, I can't believe you're struggling with this sin yet again? Does his face say, really, James, really? You see, even when we're riddled with guilt over our sin, we can still try to relate to God through our performance rather than through his. We can still try to work our way into God's good graces rather than receive the grace that he's given us on the cross. Church, the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. Which means that even though we can know that God accepts us by grace, we still convince ourselves that God will accept us a little bit more if we just do something for him. Right? We can know that God accepts us by grace, but we can at the same time be convinced, man, if I just clean my act up a little bit over here, then God would be so much happier with me. What that reveals is that we haven't truly grasped intellectually that Jesus' work for us is finished, right? Jesus, he didn't endure the crucifixion to mostly save us. He endured the crucifixion to completely save us. We don't get more saved when we obey him. He doesn't delight in us more because we obey him. The cross makes our acceptance before God sure and certain because Jesus finished his work there. 
That's the truth that we need to grab a hold of intellectually. Have you? That's how the cross informs our intellects. Now, what do we need to do? How does it command our wills? And again, I could answer that question a lot of different ways, but because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, let's just consider this one. Because Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, we need to make a commitment to regular daily confession and repentance. In other words, we need to focus on the cross, just like my friend Jamie Schertz said in Dr. Krause's kitchen 25 years ago. We need to walk in the daily rhythm of acknowledging the reality of our sin and our sinfulness, and we need to walk in the daily rhythm of seeing that sin and sinfulness nailed to the cross. Right? That's how we fight our natural default toward works righteousness. That's how we fight against the natural drift that we all experience towards defining ourselves by what we do rather than by what Christ has done. Hundreds of years ago, the great theologian John Owen, he called this the daily exercise of the saints of God. And here's what he wrote. He said, It is the daily exercise of the saints of God to consider the great provocation that is in sin, their sins, right? So not sin in general and not somebody else. He says it's the daily exercise of the saints to consider how greatly your own sin provokes the holy and righteous creator of all things. He says, this the saints do. They gather up their sins. They lay them in the balance of the law. They see and consider their weights. And then he adds, and they lay down their sins at the cross of Christ upon his shoulders. This is faith's great and bold venture upon the grace, faithfulness, and truth of God to stand by the cross and say, ah, he is bruised for my sins and wounded for my transgressions and the chastisement of my peace is upon him. He has thus made sin for me. Here I give up my sins to him that is able to bear them. This is every day's work. And Owen says, I know not how any peace can be maintained with God without it. To take that one step further, I know not how any peace, period, can be maintained without it. Are you anxious? Are you grieving? Are you fearful? Are you stressed? Is there turmoil in your heart? Are you uncertain over the future? Do you feel the angst and tension and friction of life in this broken world? The solution to all of these things is this daily exercise of faith. We weigh our sins in the balance. And then we see our sins nailed to the cross and enjoy the peace that that engenders between us and God. And the peace then that passes all understanding that can permeate our lives. That's what we must do. We must make this our daily exercise. We must consider our sin and we must lay it down at the cross of Christ upon his shoulders. Lastly today, 
How does the cross of Christ shape what we love, what we delight in, what we worship? How does the cross transform our affections? Well, I would just encourage you to believe. Actually, I would plead with you to believe. While you still can. While there is still breath in your lungs, believe that the crucified king of the Jews is not merely king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none like him. And there will be a day when his kingly glory is revealed to all, when he can no longer be denied, when he will no longer be rejected. And all will one day bow before him for all eternity. For those that love him now, that will be a delight. For those who resist him now or who are indifferent to him now, that will be awful. But one day all will bow before the high king of heaven. The apostle John, the same beloved apostle who wrote so succinctly of the crucifixion of Jesus on the day that he was crucified, died, and was buried, the same apostle who unfolded for us, you know, everything that happened as the Jews again and again and again rejected Jesus as their king. In Revelation 5, he writes of the day when all will recognize that Christ is king. He said, in between the throne, the throne of Jesus, and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, John goes on, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Church, there will be a day when you are numbered among the creatures and all that is in you declares how worthy Jesus, the King of all kings, is. May we live today for the King who we will worship on that day. Pray with me. Jesus, we just put ourselves at the foot of your cross this morning. We recognize what the cross reveals about us. 
and we recognize what the cross reveals about you. You were crucified, you died, you were buried, which means that we were so wretched in our sin that there was just no other way to save us. You were crucified, you died, you were buried, which means that we are so loved by you that you willingly and gladly gave your life for us. Help us to hold those realities together in our hearts today. Help us to to stand firmly on your finished work, not pretending that we're better than we are, not, not thinking that we can perform our way into your good graces and your favor and your acceptance. Now, Jesus, help us to rest in your perfect finished work. Pray that today in your holy name. Amen.